this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and I'm host of New Books and Music, part of the New Books Network. Music lovers and researchers alike have long been fascinated by the story of Ludwig van Beethoven, the great composer who couldn't hear his own music. Today, my guest is Robin Wallace, author of Hearing Beethoven, A Story of Musical Loss and Discovery, published in 2018 by the University of Chicago Press. This unusual book pairs a new consideration of the effects of Beethoven's deafness on his life in music with a loving memoir of the last years of Wallace's first marriage after his wife Barbara suddenly lost her hearing. Wallace applies what he learned about deafness from his experiences with Barbara to Beethoven's career in music. He punctures some myths about Beethoven and provides new insights into how Beethoven functioned both personally and as a musician as his hearing became more limited. Welcome, Dr. Wallace. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kristen. I'm glad to be here. So my first question is, what drew you to the subject of your book? Well, as uh, uh, you know, my late wife, Barbara, who passed away in 2011, was deaf for the last eight and a half years of her life. I have always been a Beethoven scholar for my entire career. And uh, so uh, there was a kind of brutal irony that I found myself married to someone who was deaf. We uh, live in a very upbeat, silver lining culture, and uh, a lot of people are telling me right away that maybe there is an upside to this. Maybe this will help you understand Beethoven better. And uh, I just didn't want to hear that at that point. I just uh, was concerned with how I would get from one day to the next facing this new challenge. And uh, in fact, for the rest of Barbara's life, which was about eight and a half years, that was still the main challenge. I didn't even think of making a book out of it. What I did notice, though, was that uh, many things that happened with her, especially after she got a cochlear implant and regained some hearing, showed a lot of possibilities for how the human brain can process auditory information. And it began to occur to me that maybe Beethoven did have similar experiences. So about 2014, just uh, uh, over a decade after she lost her hearing, three years after she died, I really felt ready to start writing and realized that I did have a book to write. Well, this is the um, most creative and interesting thing, I think, about your book. It's not just that you bring a new perspective to Beethoven because you've had this experience of living with someone who lost their hearing, but um, 
also that you weave that experience so much into the book. It's not at all like a traditional academic book on um, Beethoven. And I think the um, the decision that you made that to me was most um, affecting and was so different about the book was rather than just explaining that you had this perspective, um, you actually interwove a memoir of Barbara's life and her experiences and your experiences with her within your book about Beethoven. So it alternates chapters. There's a chapter about Barbara and yourself and then a chapter on Beethoven. I was wondering, you know, why did you decide to do that rather than write uh, sort of a more typical book where you might include that information in the introduction and then uh, move on to uh, and, and leave that out afterwards? Well, as a musicologist, one of my lifelong goals has always been to write for a broader audience besides just my colleagues. Music is a subject that a lot of people find intimidating, and one of the reasons for that is that it has a technical vocabulary, and many music books use that technical vocabulary. They include a lot of music examples. They uh, uh, talk about terms that a general audience can't understand. And so if you walk into the average bookstore, you will find books by academic writers on history, on art, on philosophy, on other humanistic subjects, but you really won't find many on music that are read by uh, non-musicians or even non-academics. I really wanted to find a way to reach out to that audience, and uh, I thought that doing the the dual memoir and history was uh, an effective way of doing it. Um, though you have, I, I thought that it really read as a trade book, and I um, and I really loved that about the book. But I also noticed that you do include musical examples. You don't use too much technical language, but you do have notation in there. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to use notation in a book that um, is clearly, at least in part, designed for a lay readership as opposed to professional musicologists? Well, it was designed for both. I very much wanted this also to be cutting-edge research in musicology to uh, open up things that my colleagues would uh, recognize as new and appreciate. So I couldn't do that without including music examples. I couldn't do it without including some technical language that might scare off some lay readers. So there are maybe a dozen pages in the book that uh, uh, non-musicians might need to skip. Apart from that, though, I think uh, the rest of it is pretty accessible. So I would say to readers who are scared off by music examples, and I know they're there, don't worry. I've been assured by quite a few non-musicians that uh, they they uh, made it through the book with no problem. Yes, I, I agree. I think that um, while I appreciated having the musical examples, I don't I don't think that they are so. Um, Germain, that you can't understand the book if you can't read music, for sure. So I agree with with your other readers. Um, I think one of the I felt in reading it that there were basically maybe three strands of Beethoven scholarship that you were um, 
we're exploring in a new way with this new perspective uh, that you bring to this material because, you know, there is a lot of scholarship on Beethoven. It's amazing that we can still find so much new to say about him after so much has been written about him. And I thought maybe we could go through each of these strands and I'd love to hear, um, you know, maybe you could explain kind of your basic uh, findings and arguments about each one of these strands. And the, and the first one uh, that I was seeing was, um, your exploration and understanding of the way that deafness impacted his life, not just his music, which is such a concern of musicologists, but actually his social life and how he writes about and his interactions with other people and how other people could interact with him and how that changes after as he becomes more, uh, uh, more and more hard of hearing. Well, yes, those are the insights that I probably could not have gained if I had not had the experience of living with a deaf person for eight and a half years. It's uh, something that uh, other Beethoven scholars haven't had, so I realized I had a unique perspective to contribute there. Yes, a lot of uh, the problems that Beethoven faced had not to do with music, but with social interactions. The picture that a lot of people have of Beethoven as uh, a, a kind of... Uh, uh, coarse and difficult person who was hard to get along with are, uh, I believe, byproducts of his deafness rather than inherent parts of his personality. And I really wanted to make sure that that came through in the book. Um, I was particularly interested, maybe you could share a little bit more about that with, uh, with our listeners, and the way that you talked about um, the limitations of the conversation books, for instance, the limitations of the ways that we have documentary evidence of how he tried to get around his deafness and sort of the strengths. And, uh, you know, I guess I've always taught, oh, look, isn't this cool? We have the one half of all of Beethoven's conversations. And you really taught me that that's not at all what those conversation books were. Well, no, it's not. Uh as a Beethoven scholar, I knew as soon as Barbara lost her hearing, which happened very suddenly in 2003, she had been deaf in one ear for a while, but the hearing in the left ear went just like that. And uh, I immediately picked up a legal pad and started writing to her. So what I realized, number one, it's a very awkward way to communicate. And uh, the things that I would write would probably be considerably shorter than what I would have said if I uh, uh, were saying them out loud. Uh, it's uh, you can't do it while you're walking, while you're eating, while you're doing anything else. If you have a conversation over a meal, I would have to stop eating in order to write what I was saying. If we were walking somewhere, we would both have to stop so that I could write it down. And if there were a third or fourth person involved, it became nearly impossible because uh, uh, everyone would have to write, pass it around, read it, and so forth. So I was very quickly disabused of any idea that using a conversation book in any way resembled a normal conversation. Um, and that sort of brings me to the uh, one of the other themes that I saw that I thought that your perspective was so valuable for was I'd never seen anyone talk in great length about all the ways that Beethoven tried to use technology uh, that was a little more sophisticated than a conversation book to both make it more 
easier for him to participate in social interactions, but also to hear the music uh, that he was composing or playing. And I wondered if you might go through some of those technologies and the ways that uh, they seem to work better or worse, depending on the situation and what sort of sounds he was trying to capture and, and how that technology actually worked and what he was using. Well, I'm glad you brought up the term technology because most people would not associate that with the kinds of devices that Beethoven used. I realized observing Barbara after she got a cochlear implant that it wasn't just a matter of you switch it on and you could hear again. Her brain had to interact with the technology. Certain kinds of circuits had to be redrawn and she gradually learned to hear better after that happened. So it occurred to me that that uh, Beethoven's ear trumpets might have been a similar experience for him. I've, I've noticed that uh, Beethoven biographers tend to sort of minimize what the ear trumpets did. I've, I've heard numerous people say, well, he really didn't get much benefit from them. So uh, I think one of the highlights of my research was when I visited the Beethoven house in Bonn, they had a couple of exact duplicates of the ear trumpets that Beethoven's friend Milzel made for him. They were exact down to having the same dents and rust marks on them and so forth as the originals. Um, and uh, they have, have had these for years, but apparently I was the first person to come and actually ask to put one of them in my ear so that I can get an idea of what Beethoven heard through them. And what I found out is that they are actually superb hearing aids. They provide good magnification, they pick up sound at a distance, and unlike modern electronic hearing aids, they don't amplify background noise. So my suspicion is, number one, that Beethoven heard much better with the ear trumpets than most people think, and that, number two, he probably got some improvement in long range in his understanding of conversation from using them, that the more he used them, the better he was able to understand with them, just as Barbara was with her implant. Why do you think it is that no one had asked to use that before? You would think that out of the many Beethoven um, scholars that have written biographies of him over the years, that other people would have investigated this. I can't really answer that. I think it's just uh, I, I was primed to do it because I was looking into hearing technology. Uh, another uh, you asked about different kinds of technology. The real mystery that we had to solve had to do with the resonator that Beethoven had built for his piano during his uh, final years, which even in serious Beethoven scholarship, you find very little reference to this, or you did until recently. And uh, I can't take credit for doing all this research myself. I uh, encouraged Tom Began, the pianist, and a, a group of uh, people at the Orpheus Institute in Belgium who had uh, recreated a, a model of Beethoven's Broadwood piano, which he had during his, his last decade, to also proceed with uh, plans to recreate the resonator, which was a kind of sound amplifying device that went over the piano and instead of projecting sound off to the side, like most piano lids, it projected it back toward the player and uh, also provided a kind of encasing shell in which he could hear. Uh, so why had nobody thought of recreating that before either? I think uh, uh, 
it, there were a remarkable set of uh, circumstances that came together in a fortuitous way that helped me to put this book together. So um, tell me a little bit about The Resonator. What was your experience of playing uh, a piano with, with that device attached to it? Well, I did not. When I was over in Belgium, they didn't yet have the final version of the device, which uh, you can see if you go to the website insidethehearingmachine.com, you can see pictures of uh, Tom Began and the piano and the uh, uh, approximation of the the final resonator that they came up with, they actually used something rather different for the recording in order to optimize the recorded sound, but uh, that's a different story. When I came there, they were working with cardboard. Now, you think cardboard, and you think, well, that's a, a modern invention, but actually they had cardboard in Beethoven's time, and it's quite clear if you dig into the conversation books that the initial models that that were built for Beethoven were also made out of cardboard and uh, that uh, they were pretty effective. So I, uh, uh, when I visited uh, uh, the Pianos Mana, the, the uh, workshop in Rousselet de Belgium, where they were working on this, I was able to sit down at an exact duplicate of Beethoven's Broadwood piano but one built within the last few years, which means it presumably sounds like it did when Beethoven first got it, not like it now sounds 200 years later. And uh, I was able to sit under this cardboard shell that they had created to go over it and uh, to play that piano using that resonator. And it was really quite remarkable, especially when I put on noise blocking earmuffs so I couldn't hear very much. I, I kind of felt like I was sitting in Beethoven's shoes. And uh, I, I realized it was as much a vibrational experience as an audio experience. I, I could could feel the, the instrument kind of pulse and throb. Uh, and uh, this was clearly an experience that Beethoven didn't have with his older pianos, which had a uh, a much uh, uh, shallower key dip and didn't have the connection between the soundboard and the frame that the Broadwood does. So that was a pretty significant insight in itself that, that Beethoven probably felt as much or more than he heard using the resonator. So do you think um, that uh, some of his pieces were written uh, with the idea of trying to create a particular vibrational feel as well as a particular sound? Or do you think that, I mean, do you have evidence for um, Beethoven writing music that would have created that kind of pulsing sounding that you're talking about? Or do you think that happens when you play anything on the Broadwood, on, on that Broadwood piano? Um, well, let's put it this way. I would have to go into the, the short answer is yes, there is evidence. I would have to go into considerable technical detail to clarify it. Uh, but uh, let's just say that the Broadwood has a different kind of action from the older Viennese pianos, which facilitated the kind of thing that you're talking about, allowed for vibrational possibilities, particularly in terms of the way notes resolved into one another that simply would not have happened on any of the pianos that Beethoven had prior to the last decade of his life. So uh, yes, to some extent that can happen in any more recent piano music, but again, it was just fortuitous. Beethoven happened to be there at the right point in history to get the new piano, which suggested a new way of playing, which in turn 
uh, opened up uh, uh, an experience to him that was a very physical one. And uh, I, I believe you can experience that if you play his, his late piano sonata, specifically the last three, Opus 109, 110, and 111, which are the three he wrote after acquiring the Broadwood. Is that something that a listener who's not actually playing the piano can be aware of as well? Or is this one of these kind of special things that is only available to a performer? Well, obviously the performer is going to be more aware of it, but uh, I, I think that uh, uh, I don't want to say too much here, but I, I, I think if you listen to those sonatas and compare them to much of Beethoven's earlier piano music, and by the way, you can add in the Diabelli variations, which were also largely written with the Broadwood in mind, and some of the late Bagatelles, Opus 119, 126, there's a, a fairly broad repertory, actually, that Beethoven wrote with the Broadwood piano and, and solely the Broadwood in mind. And uh, yes, I think you can definitely hear the ways in which that music is different from uh, the music he wrote earlier. And it's not because he was deaf, it's because he was working with a different piano. Well, I think um, we've started to touch on some of the this third strand that I see um, in your work, and and that is um, this really very interesting way that you talk about the um, his compositional process and his experience of playing music. You know, these musical experiences and how they were affected um, by his deafness. And I think um, you. Many people have tried to tackle that. That's certainly one of the things that Beethoven scholars and critics alike have have talked about in the past. And I think you have come at it from a slightly different angle because of this perspective. Can you talk a little bit about not only what your insights are into how his deafness um, and his this long descent in, as his hearing becomes uh, more and more compromised. So how you see that as affecting his compositional process in the end um, and how that's different from some of the other ways that people have interpreted um, his, uh, his experience of deafness and, and, as it relates to his music. Uh, well, there are, there are a couple of questions uh, there uh, that I would have to approach a little bit differently from each other. One of the standard tropes in the way we understand Beethoven and his deafness is that what he did afterward was he overcame his deafness and was able to to uh, produce great music nevertheless. You know, this is the overcoming story that uh, uh, we find often in the ways that people talk about disability and that, that disability advocates find so offensive because uh, it implies that, that a disability can be overcome when in many cases it can't. So one of the arguments I make in my book is that Beethoven did not in any meaningful sense overcome his deafness. He learned to work with it. He learned to work within it. Uh, and uh, he learned to do things that I think, this is going to sound funny, but that actually broadened his experience of music, the awareness of the vibrational possibility. Uh, but I'll tell you something that is even more basic, uh, that... Uh, Beethoven's style is often defined in terms of his use of short, memorable motives as opposed to longer melodic material. 
And uh, one of the things that I realized in observing Barbara and the way that she accommodated to her hearing loss was that things that were short and memorable were much easier for her to hear and recall with limited hearing. So I suspect that this central aspect of Beethoven's style, which in turn was highly influential on later 19th century and 20th century composers, was in fact a result of his deafness, something that he did in order to compensate musically for, for uh, his, uh, his hearing limitations. And, and the result was uh, an, an, a musical style that many people find uh, broader and, and more expressive and, and, and with considerably more potential uh, than uh, what Beethoven might have written otherwise. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I just thought that's just fascinating to me and and it makes so much sense when you when you hear you talk about that. The other thing that I'd love for you to talk about a little bit is your your um insights into the visual aspect of his compositional style and the way that he um interacted with actually the notation and um the way that he used his sketches to um as he refined his music can you talk a little bit about that as well um certainly this is was an interesting connection that i made because uh, when i wrote my book beethoven's critics 30 years ago i uh noted without really thoroughly understanding why that many of the people who listened to Beethoven's music in his lifetime, particularly the later works, would make connections with visual things, which with things that you could see. And they, they sort of suggested that for them, at that point in history, opening up a visual dimension to music was, was very important. We tend to think of music as consisting only of sound. And of course, in, in our culture, we often listen to music on uh, audio recordings where we hear, but we don't see. So uh, it's important, I think, to remember that that uh, in Beethoven's lifetime, music was an inherently visual experience uh, and, and still can be. Ironically, I think pop musicians today get this better than classical musicians do. Uh, so, but uh, what this also encouraged me to realize is that for Beethoven, all of those sketches, all of those manuscript scratchings out and, and, and corrections and so forth were not just records of something that he came up with in his head and wrote down. They were the actual creative process. Working on paper, Beethoven was formulating textures, and, and often they ended up being textures that you could see as well as here. And to just give one really obvious example, Beethoven's increasing fascination with fugal procedures, that is, with, with uh, uh, combining voices in, in ways 
that uh, the, the same material often interacts with itself very closely rather than just a traditional melody and harmony texture. Uh, that's something which, hearing me describe it, you can probably also envision. Even the way I talk about it, there are layers of material that that imitate one another, that connect to one another. That's what a fugue does. It's a visual experience as well as an oral one. And uh, I think that is a good part of the reason that Beethoven became fascinated with writing that way during his, his last years when, when uh, his deafness was at its most profound. Um, you touched on how critics uh, talked about the, these visual elements that they translated or, or thought about while they were listening to his music. Um, do you think that the fact that it was well known at the end of his life that he was deaf, um, do you think that that was the reason or, or had something to do with that sort of reception? Or, you know, how, or maybe I could ask this question in another way. What do you think that our knowledge of his deafness um, how has that affected our reception of Beethoven's music, not just at the time, but also today? Uh, oh, wow. Well, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, one thing, it, it's true that Beethoven's deafness was pretty much common knowledge by the time he died. It's true that there were a handful of critics who just sort of took it for granted that a deaf composer would not be able to write good music. And uh, so there were some reviews written that, that said as much, that, that uh, Beethoven's later music was nonsensical and that the reason for that was that he couldn't hear what he was writing. Uh, but uh, I think it's important to emphasize that those people were in the minority, that, that uh, the in, in, in fact, uh, as Nicholas Cook has pointed out, uh, during Beethoven's late years, critics and audiences alike made an extraordinary effort to come to terms with and understand Beethoven's music, which uh, is really unparalleled with any previous composer. So uh, the, the, uh, the, the idea that people thought that, that there was something wrong with this music because Beethoven was deaf, you know, there may be some truth to that, but uh, the, the reaction... Uh, by that time, maybe just because he was so famous, seems to have been not, okay, let's toss this aside and listen to something else, but uh, okay, let's really dig in and see if we can figure out what's going on beneath the surface of this music. What's what's he really trying to get at? How can we understand this better? There was a, a, a thirst, really, uh, to to uh, get into Beethoven's head and, and figure out what he was doing. And uh, you find this again and again, that, that, that so much is written about this music because people are so determined to, uh, uh, to make it work for them. I, I think that would be the simplest way to, to put it. They, they uh, simply weren't willing to accept that someone as great as Beethoven could have, have written nonsense. And, and uh, uh, so all kinds of theories arose as, as to how to interpret and understand that music. And I, in a sense, those, those theories are still playing out today. Do you think that, and maybe it's, you know, 200 years later, as you pointed out in the book, we can't really unhear Beethoven in this way, but do you think that um, 
this idea of Beethoven and the heroic Beethoven and how Beethoven's music is about heroism and overcoming and, you know, the hero of Beethoven three and five and all of that um, is, is that just this sort of um, uh, that myth that you were talking about that, that is so um, disability advocates find so harmful about overcoming disability. Do you think that that, can we, can we ever, um, divide the narrative that p- people hear in his music about heroism and the over and the hero overcoming adversity from this impulse that we have of looking at Beethoven's life in that same way i mean is there a way for us to to hear his music without that story in the back of our minds do you think well i think there is i i, I should first of all point out that uh, the the idea that Beethoven's music told the story of his life as opposed to, say, Napoleon's life, which was how Beethoven himself thought of the Eroka Symphony, that that was not even suggested until the year after he died. The first person to tell that story was a, a man named Frulich, and he was writing a review of the Ninth Symphony in 1828. And uh, he came up with what was then the completely novel idea that this music was Beethoven's musical autobiography. And uh, that idea has then become, had a very profound effect both on the way we hear virtually everything that Beethoven wrote and uh, also on uh, the way later composers uh, wrote what they did in the, the later 19th century. On the one hand, you have Richard Strauss, who writes this big, long piece called A Hero's Life, which which he makes no bones about the fact is about himself. And on the other hand, you have Tchaikovsky, who doesn't seem to have been able to write a symphony without devising a program that had something to do with his life, even if he ultimately suppressed that program. He he had thoroughly internalized the idea that a symphony has to be autobiographical. So, you know, because of all of that, it, it is very hard for us to get back behind that and hear the music in other terms. But uh, at the same time, I would point out, and I'm hardly the first person to have, have said this, people in the Beethoven world have been complaining about this fact for years, that when people talk about the Beethoven style, they always point to the same handful of works. It's always the Eroica Symphony, the Fifth Symphony, the Ninth Symphony, and maybe one or two others. And there is so much else that Beethoven wrote that you can't really hear that way, or you really have to contort in order to hear the heroism overcoming story in it. Um, And uh, I I think if we really look at Beethoven's work as a whole, instead of just focusing on that handful of pieces that seem to confirm what we believe about it already, yes, there is a very different way of approaching his his music that uh, is right there in front of our faces. Uh, And uh, we just... Uh, kind of op- need to open ourselves up to it. So how how do you hear Beethoven differently now uh, than you did, say, before Barbara uh, lost her hearing? Um, do you find yourself hearing those pieces quite differently? Um, well, let's let's say I was thinking about these issues already uh, because uh, I, I, for a long time, have been, been very interested in finding new ways of interpreting Beethoven, or some people would say of mythologizing Beethoven for uh, the, the modern world. Because, uh, you know, let's face it, the, the, the heroism idea 
uh, doesn't work for a lot of modern audiences. Um, and in fact, uh, there have uh, been a lot of people who have uh, uh, sort of tried to write off Beethoven or at least minimize his importance. I, I actually saw a discussion recently among uh, some of my colleagues about whether it would be possible to teach music history without Beethoven. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you think about that and your first reaction is, my gosh, how, how could you do that? You know, if somebody asks you, can you teach music history without Rameau? You would say, well, sure, you know, just focus on other things. Can you teach music history without, uh, 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 without Mio? Uh, well, uh, yeah, you know, just don't spend so much time on France. But could you teach music history without Beethoven? Just to ask the question <laughs> is uh, to, to realize how, how entrenched Beethoven has become in the way that we understand everything. Um, so I have been interested for a very long time, not in dislodging Beethoven, but in rethinking uh, how we understand him. Um, and... Uh, uh, so, what I would say is that that uh, what uh, I learned from studying his deafness has probably reconfirmed some of the ideas I already had. Now, you may say, "Okay, that's that's uh, that that's confirmation bias operating there," and maybe it is. Uh, but uh, uh, I I think that. Uh, uh, we need to understand Beethoven as a much broader human being, as someone who had a much fuller emotional life than just the dynamic and and, uh, and triumphal Beethoven would suggest. And uh, that if we hear him that way, um, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and use a, a word which is almost anathema among many of my colleagues, but uh, uh, I'll use it all the same. I think Beethoven's musical language is one of the most broadly universal that has ever been created. Now, that's not the same as to say that music is a universal language, which is the, the idea that has come into, into question. But I think of all composers, Beethoven is probably the most universal. Um, and uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, uh, he confronted aspects of human experience that other people never had to deal with. And uh, as as a result, uh, he he broadened his his uh, not just his musical technique, but the expressive range of his music as well. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's very well stated. Actually, I I uh, teach a class where I uh, we do talk about this idea of universal language, but I teach it after they've. Uh, been listening to some Beethoven, and I often have kids say, "Oh, I don't think music is a universal language, but I think I hear something in Beethoven that's universal to the human experience, which is a little different than saying it's a universal." Yeah, you know. Well, because uh, we, I, I teach um, uh, a course on music and oppression, and we talk about how Beethoven was used by the Allies and by the Axis powers in uh, during World War II, and so. And by just about every other political movement in Germany for for the past two hundred years. <laughs> absolutely right. Absolutely, of course, it's sort of a case study class, so that's why we we focus just on that particular case study. But of course, you have to sort of ask yourself, well, how can it how can it mean so much to so many people that 
both sides of a war are using the same piece and, and, you know, two sides that have some pretty important um, philosophical differences. And, and that's the way my students often, exactly how you spoke about it is exactly how so many of my students speak about Beethoven as well and in explaining how that works. So um, uh, it's, I think that there's, there's something there for sure about what you're saying about his music and his, um, it's suffused with something that is, is different from a lot of other composers. I, I hear that as well. Um, uh, perhaps we could also speak a little bit about this idea of myths around Beethoven. You know, the main, these big composers, Beethoven, Mozart, others, have so many myths surrounding them that get taught over and over in music history classrooms and other kinds of classrooms, and that I don't even know where people find out about them, but they come in with them. Um, can And I think that one of the strengths of the book is you it's not written you don't write like myth number 1 about beethoven that i am now going to, <laughs> to to tell you is not true but maybe you can talk a little bit about um other kind of myths that have grown up around beethoven that i think that your book while you're not you know annoyingly uh, uh <laughs> open about it but you're definitely talking about those myths um at least as a subtext in the ways that uh the way that you're talking about beethoven helps us understand uh uh you know what's myth and what what is what we need to stop teaching about beethoven and thinking about beethoven can you can you talk a little bit more about some of those um, sure. And I'll just mention that my friend Linda Shaver Gleason, who writes a blog called Not Another Music History Cliché, uh, has uh, wrote a couple of entries on that blog that drew on my book and, and pointed out uh, just how many myths I, I do bust up in the course of writing the book. Uh, I mean, you're right. I don't don't really call attention to the fact that that's what I'm doing, but uh, uh, if you if you read Linda, she'll she'll uh, she'll make it pretty clear. Uh, one of them, for example, is uh, the idea that uh, if uh, Beethoven had uh, had a modern grand piano at hand, that he would have preferred it to the ones that uh, that he worked with because it has such a a bigger, more rounded, and more versatile sound. So uh, one of the things that I tried to carefully document, particularly in Chapter Five of the book, is that Beethoven always always worked with whatever instrument he had on hand. And uh, he exploited it to the limit of its range, but no further. He clearly understood that if there was something that could not be done on the piano he had, he wasn't going to do it. So I the the whole idea that Beethoven had some kind of ideal piano sound in his head that he was hoping the piano would develop toward uh, you know, when I put it that way, it sounds nonsensical on the surface, but that's what's sort of been suggested by a lot of people. Uh, I think the the ultimate uh, uh, argument against that is provided by the Hammerklavier Sonata. You know, it's that that huge sonata that he wrote in his last years that supposedly sounds so much better on a modern piano that that if Beethoven could only have had it heard performed on a modern Steinway, he uh, he he would have uh, uh, been been delighted. Uh, but the fact is that when he was three quarters of the way through that sonata, when he was about to um, uh, complete the third movement and to begin the big fugal finale, that's the point at which he received the Broadwood piano as a gift from the English Broadwood firm. 
and immediately he shifted the entire range of the piano because the piano he was working with beforehand had a six octave range from F to F. The Broadwood had a six octave range from C to C. So it went down farther, but it didn't go up as high. Uh, so whereas the first three movements of the Hammerklavier uh, follow the F to F range of the Viennese piano, the uh, uh, Last movement follows the C to C range of the Broadwood. So you literally could not play the entire sonata on either of the pianos that Beethoven had when he was writing it. And that's because each movement was so carefully calculated to work on the piano that he was writing it for. Well, that's just an amazing story. So <laughs> I'm glad you told that. Um, and I also know Linda's work, and I love her blog. I use it uh, often in my teaching. And I think um, for her blog, her her uh, her approach works great. And um, but I do like the approach in your book, which is also uh, as well, which is also a little bit more understated, but equally, I think, in powerful in pointing out to us the ways that we mythologize these composers and we kind of rob them of their. Um, their specific personalities and experiences by uh, by doing that. Um, and I think nothing is more exemplary of that than this kind of he's overcome his deafness um, uh, mythology that I think that you so um, eloquently address towards the end of the book in particular uh, when you talk about um, that what he did was was hopefully find wholeness in his life, which is something that you felt uh, that you relate that Barbara, you feel also that Barbara had had found in her life as well. Uh huh. Well, yes, this really uh, is is where I think the idea of weaving the two stories together became most effective because uh, I I observed Barbara come to terms with the limitations of her own hearing and with other physical limitations that she had because of, of the, the complex of health problems. I don't need to go into that, but uh, um, she was what many people would perceive as a fairly disabled person. And yet she did have a kind of wholeness within those limitations that speaks to what what human life can be, um, that uh, you don't have to be perfectly healthy in order to be whole, even though the words healthy, hale, whole, and so forth are all, are all related. Uh, they can mean different things. So I, I suggest that Beethoven found a kind of wholeness in his music uh, and you know, I didn't I know Beethoven personally, so I don't know what it would have been like to live with him. A lot of people found him kind of difficult, as I said earlier. But uh, I, I suspect that uh, the wholeness we hear in his music uh, reflects his uh, his his life as well, at least his inner life, um, and uh, that uh, uh, you can can look for it musically, but but uh, it it would also uh, serve us well to kind of, uh, as I've tried to do in the book, get into Beethoven's head, imagine what it was like to be him, imagine what it was like to uh, to deal with these kinds of circumstances. And uh, I think uh, 
hopefully when one does that, one emerges with a much more sympathetic understanding of, of who he was and what wholeness meant for someone like him. When, when you were in the midst of, of your life with Barbara, were you having these same insights that you later write about? You said it took a while before you even contemplated writing this book. Did, is this are these insights things that you came to later uh, after her death, or or were you able to think about these things while you while you were while she was living? Um, well, I, no, I thought about them. Uh, in, in fact, some of them I thought about in considerable detail. I uh, just wasn't really ready to write a book about it yet when I was right in the middle of it. And in fact, I was working on other things at the time that uh, that kept me pretty busy. Uh, so uh, it, uh, it, it was not until a few years after she died that uh, I, I really felt ready. I said this earlier that I felt ready to write the book, but when I did, I went back and thought about all the things that I'd observed and, and, and realized that, uh, uh, that, that yes, I, I could have written this earlier. I, I just now have the benefit of hindsight and a little emotional distance so I can do it more, more effectively. But uh, um I think uh, to, to give you another example, I talk about this in the book, how, how uh, before Barbara got her cochlear implant, we uh, experimented with something called a pocket talker, which was a, a, a rather primitive amplifying device, actually, that produced a very loud sound stream into her headphones. And, and how by using this to talk over a period of several months, we were actually able to improve her speech comprehension, the soundproof booth considerably. And it was not because her hearing changed in any way. It was because the physiology of her brain got rewired a bit uh, to uh, uh, to uh, allow her to maximize the use of the residual hearing she had left. And I think that was the first insight that I got after that. Uh, this was fairly early in the saga of her deafness. And I thought, well, my goodness, if, if this happened to her, uh, why might Beethoven not have had the same experience? Uh, you know, would, is it is it possible that uh, that his mind also his brain also rewired itself in order to allow him to hear things that were important to him better? And uh, so I kind of I lived with that idea for a very long time, and that in turn spawned a lot of the other insights that I, I brought out in the book. Well, I, certainly one of the things I learned from this book was was just how amazing the human brain is, as you talk about. You know, I, I guess I knew that children's brains were so, uh, I guess, malleable. But to hear of an adult brain uh, like Barbara, who was, who was, you know, in middle age when all this happened to her, could still uh, create so many new ways of hearing and and. Um, that she could improve her comprehension of so many different kinds of sounds over the course of of those eight years was was just amazing. It, it left me in awe of the human body. I have to say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, a, a lot of people don't think the adult brain can make those kinds of changes, and uh, so realizing that it can was one of the first big shockers I got in this this process because it, it uh, sort of took me out of my complacency. Um, the uh, the cochlear implant had a lot to do with that. Uh, as 
I, I said earlier that uh, uh, when you get a cochlear implant, it's not just a matter of you turn it on and you can hear. You have to learn to hear all over again. Uh, and that uh, includes probably rededicating portions of the brain that uh, were being used for other things and, and redrawing the internal circuitry. But fundamentally, that's no different from what a stroke patient does when they learn to recover speech or, or comprehension. Uh, they have, have lost a part of their brain that, that previously was able to do that. And, and uh, with, with therapy and practice, they can learn to begin using a different part of their brain to do the same thing. Uh, so it really shouldn't come as news to people that this this happens. It just uh, is is not not uh, not something that I think is broadly enough understood. Oh, certainly, certainly it was uh, it was important for me to read that, and it did help me uh, understand. I, I think the whole book really made me look at Beethoven in a very different way, and um, uh, I, it was very. Um, I, I really appreciated. Once again, how important it is that we have scholars that are coming at even um, information that and data that seems to be so worked over as Beethoven sketches, for instance, seem to be, um, that the more perspectives we bring to this work, uh, the more we can um, find new ways to understand it. And I think that this book is an excellent example of that. Well, thank you. Um, I uh, let, let me just say that uh, Beethoven's sketches may seem to have been thoroughly worked over, but uh, uh, there's an awful lot of material out there that that has hardly even been looked at, let alone transcribed into editions uh, that uh, uh, that most people could read. Uh, I guess what interested me about working with the sketches was I wasn't interested in looking at a transcription. I was looking at at interested in looking at what Beethoven actually wrote, not so much to understand the process by which he got from there to the finished work, but just to understand that this writing is the process. It is the actual writing and the the visual and tactile experience that that involves that that helped him to generate musical ideas. And, And I found that you could do that with a lot of the sketches. And I think that's probably the new insight that I bring in that book that I hope will encourage others to look at Beethoven's sketches in the same way. Because again, I think we're only really beginning to, to learn what is to be learned from this. Well, and I think also that may be an insight to bring into a lot of other composers, even those that, you know, are not uh, have hearing issues. I, I can't imagine that Beethoven is not is the only composer that um, is using more senses than just hearing when they uh, than they compose. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think we should probably wrap this up a little bit now. This has been a, such a fascinating conversation. Perhaps you can we can end it by just uh, having you tell us what you are working on now and uh, what your next project is. Well, my next project is actually finishing up a project that I've been working on for a very long time, which is uh, the uh, uh, what will ultimately be complete edition. In, in English with annotations of the critical reception of Beethoven's music uh, during his lifetime. Uh, so uh, if you uh, 
look at the website of the Center for Beethoven Research at Boston University, you'll find currently three installments of that that work that I have published within the last year and a half or so. I hope to get five more out within the next few years. And at that point, the entire corpus of German writing languages German language writings about Beethoven up to 1830 will be accessible in good English language translations uh, that uh, uh, the first two are in volumes that were published uh, several years ago. And then the, the, uh, uh, the last, uh, 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 the last two volumes worth of material will be in uh, uh, easy public access, free public access uh, 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 online. Uh, and uh, so that's going to take me a few more years. Uh, and uh, uh, after that, uh, who knows? Well, that is quite a project and will certainly be of great use to, to other people interested in, in Beethoven and music criticism in that time period. But wow, that, that must, uh, I can see why it's taken a while because that's a huge, huge undertaking. And um, it's very exciting that it's open access as well. Thank you so much for that. Well, thank you very much for talking to me today, and it was wonderful to hear about your book, Hearing Beethoven. Well, thank you, Kristen. I've enjoyed it.